Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. just to properly explain DeFi. There's a lot of misconceptions about exactly how DeFi works and you know, what, what the relationship is between Ethereum and the tokens and the validators and the supply and yield farming and that kind of thing. So basically, here's how it works. So you have DeFi and then you have the yield farming and then you've got like a bunch of terms and some unregistered securities and some stuff and then some people throwing money they're gonna lose and then you have some cake and a fire and there's DeFi. Bruce Fenton, everybody, give him a hand. Woo, yay, Bruce. Yeah, that was from Bruce Fenton. Thank God finally somebody had the, the wherewithal to sit down and explain to me yield farming. Man, I thought I was never gonna understand that crap. So. It is, what time is it? Oh, 9.20 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 14th of August, 2020. This is episode 271 of Bitcoin. And I'm going to be on at TechBalt's show. Uh, is it the one Bitcoin show? It's the one he does on like Fridays. Yeah, he does like, he does shows every day, but there's a special one he gets on Friday and I can't remember what the name of it is. But it's at TechBalt, B-A-L-T, T-E-C-H-B-A-L-T. That's Adam Meister. Adam Meister. If you're not following Adam Meister, man, you, well, he, he's one of the podcasts that I started out with when I entered this space. So back in 2015. Yeah. Anyway, this will be my fourth appearance on a show. We're going to be taping that sometime around, I, want, I don't know, 2 o'clock this afternoon. Um, I think he does it live. I will not be showing my beautiful face on today's show because there's a shortage of webcams. I didn't see that one coming and I should have. My wife had to borrow my webcam because we couldn't locate one at either two, uh, let's see, two Walmarts, a Target, and Best Buy, where I'm at, doesn't kind of let you in the door to, to browse. You kind of got to know what you want. So I was unable to pick up a webcam for my wife, so she stole mine. And then over the last few days, I've gone back to a couple of stores, and guess what? No webcams. Why? Because school is starting. So, and, well, school is starting. So all the people that have already been working from home either have to get a new webcam for their kids or have to replace the one that their kids stole from them because school is about to start. And since the whole Rona thing is going on still, many people are opting to just keep it keep it virtual and we are too. And it's not because of it's not because of Rona as much as I've kind of gotten used to having my kids around, man, and it's nice. It's infuriating at times, but it's nice. Uh, and we are thinking seriously about just going ahead and homeschooling their ass. But we're going to, since we live 
in a town that has a pretty decent, I'll say decent quality independent school district. Uh, and the teacher to student ratio is pretty low insofar as there's a low amount of students per teacher. Um, and the teachers here really like their kids, man. So, you know, we're going to give them a shot and see if they do a much better job on the online stuff than they did last year, because last year they had to cobble that, or yeah, last, yeah, last year they had to cobble that shit together uh, really quick. Uh, well, no, it would be this year. That's right. Not last year. Uh, it was around spring break for my kids that they went uh, spring break and then they went back to school two days and then they were done. That was it, man. That was the last they saw of their teachers, the last they saw of the inside of their school, which was really sad. I mean, because, look, I know what a lot of people say about the education system. And it's not that I disagree. It's that we sometimes forget about the connections that students, you know, and children do make with their teachers and the, the connections that teachers make with their students. The chicanery of the weirdness aside with the connections, I'm talking about the actual, you know, people being people. We need that. And we're being divorced from each other in a very substantial way. So, <clears throat> okay, so let's see. Where do I need to begin? All right, so that's the Adam Meister news. I got a shill. Uh, let's see. Who am I going to shill today? I got three of them to shill. I got crypto CNC designs. Welcome to the home of the finest Bitcoin and cryptocurrency artwork on earth. This is cryptocnc.com. Again, that's cryptocnc.com. Just thought I'd give them a shout out because they offer an assortment of Bitcoin and crypto artwork, numerous options to those who desire a custom designed piece of artwork for their home, office, workshop, or as a gift for those around you. We will be adding new products, so check back often. So what do they do? Well, they make art and apparently they have, I don't know, I'm looking at it now and these, they do a lot of large coin looking work out of wood. So when they, uh, if you don't know what CNC is, honestly, it's like, it's the progenitor of 3D printing, uh, but you put a billet of something on there, like, I don't know, a disc of wood a round of aluminum and then you carve, you use uh, uh, essentially computer aided uh, machine to carve whatever it is that you're going to carve. In the case of a billet of aluminum, that's one of the ways that you make really kick-ass looking wheels, right? You know, but it's got a car. Anyway, so they make art and most of the things that I'm seeing are these big rounds in wood and they're rather, they're rather pretty. It is too bad that they do shitcoin designs as well as Bitcoin, but hey, we all got to feed ourselves. Uh, let's see who else is up on the list. I'm going to do this one. Citadel21.com now has a BTC pay server powered donation button. That's right. Citadel21.com forward slash donate. You can give the guys that are trying to uh, blast this magazine, the uh, Citadel 21 mag out. You can give them a few thousand Satoshis by using BTC pay server. And yes, the lightning side of the BTC pay server is set up and ready to go. 
And I have to apologize to the guys over at Citadel21.com because as I was testing that out to see if the lightning thing actually worked, it generated an invoice, which I promptly forgot to pay because I was setting up the rest of the show. So that was a false invoice, guys, which led to your invoice count. And no, I didn't, it, it didn't get paid. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll try to correct that shit later after the show. Okay, so if go donate citadel21.com that's c i t a d e l the number 2 the number 1.com forward slash donate give them some give them some satoshi bro. Okay, uh let's see. Last one up is bitcoinenemies.com. This is what's called a mumble server and I have never even heard about a mumble server before today. So, uh, I was cruising around my uh Twitter feed and somehow or another these guys popped up and I just told them I'd chill them on the pod because this is a 24-7 Bitcoin meetup space. It is an open community to talk about Bitcoin and what you do is you apparently uh, you install Mumble and then you configure it and then you connect it to whatever server you're going to you know want to mumble on I guess and this is the server so they give you a great big old join server link and um, let's see what do they say about it. Uh, live voice chat. It's hard to have meaningful conversations over text, explore hard ideas in a far more conducive medium, a supportive and accountable space to learn, challenge, bias, and help others along their Bitcoin journey. Experience the person behind the keyboard and network with active Bitcoiners forge stronger connections. All right. I might give this one a shot. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works out. If, uh, if it's a complete fail or a success, I'll, I'll report back later. And that is going to do it for community news. Let's dive headfirst into the shit that shook up the world last night. Fortnite's maker sues Apple and Google after the game was removed from both app stores. Brian Fung and Shannon Liao of CNN Business is writing this one sometime late yesterday afternoon, or actually yesterday evening when the whole thing broke out. The maker of Fortnite is suing Apple and Google after the tech giants blocked the widely or sorry, wildly popular online video game, which boasts hundreds of millions of registered players from their app stores Thursday. The companies behind the iOS and Google Play app stores said they removed Fortnite because its developer, Epic Games, that's going to come back to bite. We'll talk about that. Violated their guidelines by announcing a way for players to buy in-game currency without using Apple and Google's proprietary payment systems. It quickly became clear that the suits were not a spur-of-the-moment decision by Epic. The complaints ran to 60 pages each, and one of the lawyers involved is Christine Varney, who ran the Justice Department's antitrust division during the Obama administration. Epic then added insult to injury, releasing a video parodying Apple's iconic 1984 ad casting Apple in the role of villain. It also threw Google's Don't Be Evil slogan back at the tech company and accused the firm of having, <clears throat> quote, relegated its motto to nearly an afterthought. Oh, man, bitch slap. The controversy began when Epic Games announced Thursday it will offer a permanent 20% discount on Fortnite's in-game currency if players purchase directly from Epic. In a blog post, Epic said players could not get the discount if they paid via Apple or Google. Quote, currently, when using Apple and Google payment options, 
Apple and Google collect a 30% fee and the up to 20% price drop does not apply. The company added, if Apple or Google lower their fees on payments in the future, Epic will pass along the savings to you, end quote. Epic's post referred to how both Apple and Google app stores take a 30% cut of in-app sales. Epic CEO Tim Sweeney has publicly criticized both Apple and Google for these practices. Hours later, Fortnite vanished from Apple's app store and Epic responded with a lawsuit. Quote, Apple's removal of Fortnite is yet another example of Apple flexing its enormous power in order to impose unreasonable restraints and unlawfully maintain it's 100% monopoly over the iOS in-app payment processing market, Epic said in its complaint, which was filed in the United States District Court of the Northern District of California. It requested an injunction to prohibit Apple's allegedly anti-competitive conduct and to mandate that Apple restore competition. Apple said Thursday that Epic had violated its App Store guidelines regarding in-app payments. Quote, today, Epic Games took the unfortunate step <laughs> of violating the App Store guidelines that are applied equally to every developer and designed to keep the store safe for our users, Apple said in a statement. As a result, their Fortnite app has been removed from the store. Apple said it will work with Epic to resolve the violation so Fortnite can return to the App Store. Later Thursday, Google said it, it too had removed Fortnite from the Google Play Store, though the game can still be installed from other sources on Android devices. Quote, the open Android ecosystem lets developers distribute apps through multiple app stores, Google said in a statement. For game developers who choose to use the Play Store, we have consistent policies that are fair to developers and keep the store safe for users. While Fortnite remains available on Android, we can no longer make it available on Play because it violates our policies. However, we welcome the opportunity to continue our discussions with Epic and bring Fortnite back to Google Play. In response, Epic filed another lawsuit, this time against Google. Google, quote, is using the, its size to do evil upon competitors, innovators, customers, and users in a slew of markets. It has grown to monopolize the complaint filed in the District of Northern California. Uh, Red, yeah. This isn't the first time Epic has had an, antagon an antagonistic relationship with the major app stores. In 2018, Epic announced it would not bring Fortnite to Google's Play Store and instead asked players to download the game directly from its website. In April, Epic released Fortnite on the Google Play Store two years after the game landed on iOS. At that time, it explained in a statement that it had finally made the move because software downloaded outside of Google Play on Android operates at a disadvantage, suffering, uh, suffering from security pop-ups and restrictions with Google Public Relations describing such software as malware. The revolt against the dominant app store operators includes other household names. Last year, Netflix ended support for its in-app subscriptions, asking users instead to pay through its website. Spotify made a similar decision in 2016, more recently, the new email service Hey.com found itself at odds with Apple because it did not use Apple's own payment platform. Hey's founder, David Heinmeier Hansen, what that's his name? David Heinmeier Hansen, okay, testified in January against Apple's practices in a congressional hearing held by the House Judiciary Committee's antitrust panel, which is investigating Am <coughs> Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google for potential anti-competitive behaviors. Hansen told CNN he's also spoken to Justice Department antitrust officials about the app's experience with Apple. 
Apple's policy have attracted the attention of international competition regulators as well. Earlier this year, the European Commission opened two antitrust investigations into Apple's App Store, citing a complaint by Spotify. And clearly, Apple and Google are, you know, rejecting the claims in, in the lawsuits that are filed. But the lawsuits have been filed. Now, let's get into just how bad this shit is. And it's bad. It's kind of bad on both ends because Epic, we're not talking about some dude's, you know, game studio that he started in grandma's basement. That ain't, that is not Epic. All right. Epic is a huge behemoth in the gaming industry and it ain't just because of the games that it has released. And if we just look at just the, just the popularity of Fortnite alone, right? This is a terrible move on Apple's part. It's also a terrible move on Epic's part because they are in clear violation of the policies of Apple that they signed up to. Both of them are acting like small children. Okay, I'm not, it's not that I'm rooting for either one of them, but they, they both have problems. Apple and Google have problems because they just pissed off about two decades worth of future customers. Because these kids, they want to play. And guess what products they're going to think twice about buying because they have a bad taste in their mouth from this whole thing, especially the people on iOS. Because once it's out of the app store, you ain't using it on your phone. Android is Android users are in a better boat as well as far as that's concerned because their shit will still function. It's not just going to disappear from their phone. But, you know, no updates. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's gone. But concentrating on Apple here, yeah, you just kind of, you kind of burned a, a bridge here. Now, Epic is, again, is kind of just as, as much as at fault. You know, they really should have gone into some kind of arbitrage uh, to do this kind of, or not arbitration, sorry, yeah. Arbitration with a third party to resolve the situation because that game is so big and so widely used that they would have had the the leveraging power to say we need to go to arbit uh, to arbitration for this particular situation. We don't want to pay a thirty percent premium. Look at our look at the numbers. You know, just run the numbers. How many kids are on this? Here's how many. You know, and you know they got the metrics of how many skins were bought and how many guns were purchased and the just the flow of the in app uh, currency that they're using. By the way, of course, Bitcoin fixes this, but we'll. That's just sort of a, a no-brainer. But here's the rub. Epic isn't just the maker of Fortnite. Epic is the maker and the whole, the holy, the whole owner. Okay. They own all the rights, all the patents, everything for the Unreal Game Engine. That's a problem for Apple and Google. That's a big problem. Because probably I'm gonna say. I'm going to go safe. It's probably more like 80%, but I'm going to say at least 50% of all AAA rated games that have been created since, I don't know, let's go back to, let's go all the way back to 2005. Been done on the Unreal Engine. Half of a multi-hundred billion dollar a year industry is based on Unreal Engine, which is owned by freaking Epic, who are now in an Epic 
very public, very nasty, very prepared uh, fight against Apple and Google. Where is this shit going to run? I don't know. I have no idea, but it's just, this is going to be a mess on probably both sides. Bitcoin stuff, well, kind of. The Federal Reserve is experimenting with the digital dollar. <laughs> They've been doing that for a long time, people. Come on. August 13th, Nicholas Day writing for Coindesk. Uh, U.S. Federal Reserve is actively investigating distributed ledger technologies and how they might be used for digitizing the dollar, as if the dollar wasn't digital already. Federal Reserve Board Governor Lael Brainerd said, is it Lael? L-A-E-L. I don't know how to pronounce that, but Brainerd said that the U.S. Central Bank has been testing DLT over the past several years to study what a digital currency might do to the existing payments ecosystem, monetary policy, financial stability, and banking sector. Quote, with these important issues in mind, the Federal Reserve is active in conducting research and experimentation related to distributor ledger technologies and the potential use cases for digital currencies in, quote, Brainyard said Thursday at a Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco's Innovation Office Hours. Brainyard cited the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic as one issue that reinforced the need for immediate and trusted access to funds, noting that recipients of emergency stimulus funds spent them quickly, indicating they urgently needed access. Oh, God. Quote, the COVID crisis is a dramatic reminder of the importance of a resilient and trusted payments infrastructure that is accessible to all Americans. It was notable that after a sharp reduction in spending early in the COVID-19 crisis, many households increased their spending starting on the day they received emergency relief payments. End quote. The idea of a digital dollar as a tool to distribute emergency stimulus funds is not new. Congress has been kicking the idea around since at least March. That sounds new to me. However, no concrete public efforts have been made to create a blockchain-based central bank digital currency in the United States. U.S. lawmakers have asked Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell <clears throat> about the potential benefits to a digital dollar in the past. The regulator said last November that the central bank is carefully analyzing the potential benefits as well as the cost. At the time, Powell said that the Fed was not actively developing a digital dollar, that it might not offer the same benefits to U.S. consumers that other nations' central bank digital currencies would offer their citizens, and that there were questions about privacy and consumer protection. Brainyard echoed those questions in her speech Thursday, but her remarks indicate the Fed is further along in its experimentation than has previously been confirmed. So there you go. That's, yeah, it's kind of dumb. You know, the dollar already is digital. I, I, I Honestly, I just think it's kind of hand-waving, but whatever. We'll see what comes out of this. I actually don't think anything is going to come out of this. I really don't. I don't think the United States has, I think it's just lip service that they're doing something. And they were like, oh, I don't know. Let's just, let's yell blockchain every once in a while. And people will go, oh, well, fuck blockchain. That'll work. I mean, we're saved, right? We're saved. FinTech unicorn Revolut says crypto investors now hold $121 million in Bitcoin and five shit coins as trading volume surges. That's clearly not exactly what the Daily Hodel staff writing for the Daily Hodel's uh, headline states, but you know, I modify stuff on the fly. Customers of London-based fintech firm Revolut 
hold 121 million worth of Bitcoin. In the company's 2019 financial report, Revolut said it witnessed an increase of 150% in its customers' cryptocurrency holdings as of December 31st, 2019. The investment unicorn's crypto holdings surged to $121 million. Wow, from $48 million in 2018. According to data from Revolut reported by Finextra, one Bitcoin showed, uh, once Bitcoin showed signs of recovery from its mid-March crash and began its now four-month-long uptrend, analysts in the crypto market came to life in the two weeks after April the 20th. The number of UK customers investing in cryptocurrencies grew by 68% and the average amount of cryptocurrency bought increased by 57%. The company bills itself as the first truly global financial super app. <laughs> super app. Revolut serves as a broker to its 12 million customers throughout Europe and the US by offering exposure to a wide range of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Bcash, Slightcoin, and Stellar Fumans. Wow, that actually came out better than I thought. Revolut notes that it owns the underlying crypto assets. The company stores the digital assets in several ways, including entrusting a crypto custodian, a cryptocurrency wallet provider, and currency exchanges that host hot wallets or wallets that are connected to the internet and cold wallets or wallets that are offline. The money transfer and exchange firm processes 100 million transactions per month. Revolut CEO Nikolay Stronotsky has a history of standing up for cryptocurrencies in the past, publicly disagreeing with JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, who called digital assets a fraud that will blow up in 2017. And blow up they did, but not in the way that JP Morgan was talking about. So now a sec, we've got sort of maybe the start of an avalanche of, you know, finding out that institutions either have been holding all this time and that institutions were not coming. They were actually already here or, or actually probably and or most likely, uh, we're going to see more announcements of people saying, screw it. We got to hedge, bro. We got to We got to get out of this thing before it all burns to the ground because burning to the ground is exactly what you're witnessing with all the shit that's going on in the world. I got news that somewhere, I think in the Netherlands, if you put a gallon of gas in, in your tank, you're paying like a 70% gas tax. I, I just, I don't, it makes me happy that the human spirit is so resilient that it can just put up with immense amounts of shit. But that very same statement kind of makes me sad. I mean, thank God for the resiliency, but holy crap, at what point does this just all break apart? It No, it's just wrong. It's wrong. Why it's time to pay attention to Mexico's booming crypto market. This was written yesterday for Coindesk by Sandali Handagama. I'm sure I butchered it. Luis Sosa, 39, the creative director at a startup in Mexico City, watched with skepticism as his friends invested in Bitcoin a decade ago. Even after they made good on their investments, Sosa kept his distance. Now his attitude towards crypto is changing, but not for the reasons you'd think. Quote, with the increasingly onerous banking requirements in Mexico, I am very tempted to use crypto, especially to buy things online, Sosa said. He's not alone. In a trend that is largely unnoticed outside of the country, Mexico is embracing cryptocurrency at a breakneck speed in the eighth, eight month, good Lord, in the eight months between September 
2019 and May 2020, the trading volume of Mexico's leading crypto exchange, Bitso, grew by 340%, according to the exchange. Earlier this year, Bitso announced it had surpassed 1 million users on its platform, of which 92 are Mexican. For comparison, there are 35 traditional brokerages in the country with under 400,000 active trading accounts in total, according to Mexico's financial authority, CNBV. Quote, it is truly shocking because we are seeing how only one cryptocurrency exchange has demonstrated greater potential than 35 dedicated investment management uh, entities, said Eloisa Cadenas, CEO of consulting firm CryptoFintech and professor at the Mexican Stock Exchange Group. Uh, Sosa is drawn in, is drawn to crypto in part for its potential to transfer money easily. In Mexico, that is becoming increasingly hard to do. In its effort to crack down on criminal activity, Mexico may have made simple transactions difficult for or, ordinary citizens as well. You can stop right there. Reverse that. This None of this shit is about criminal activity, and and you know it deep down in your gut. It is about making simple transactions difficult for ordinary citizens. And that shit that, we were, that I was reading about the uh, digital dollar because it needed a trusted and easier payments method, that's bullshit. This is all about putting the hammer down on the population. Why? I don't know. I don't care if people are burning straw owls statues on some freaking island in off the east coast of the United States and worshiping Mamouk. I don't give a shit about any of that. All I care about is what I see. And what I see is the hammer being put down on the, the citizenry of every nation around the globe. Don't know why, don't care. We just need to get out of it. The country has long struggled with tax evasion and money laundering, but two years ago, Mexico decided to put a substantial prevention method in place. In August of 2019, right before Bitso's trade volume began its dramatic climb, the government began implementing new fintech laws that sought to govern financial service providers in the banking and private capital sectors from entrepreneurs to crowdfunding institutions. According to the new laws, Tech firms that hold deposits for users had to register as a financial institution within the country. But compliance was expensive. Of course, it always is. With applications running over $35,000 and the law requiring businesses, even startups, to have a minimum annual profit of $100,000. National media reported at the time that of the 500 listed startups in the country, 201 had to be approved by regulators to continue operations Once the new laws rolled in, only 85 ended up applying for accreditation. Bitso was among the firms approved to continue operations in Mexico. I'm going to stop right there again. um, You have to have a minimum annual profit of $100,000 and the application fee costs you a third of that. That is not to make money. I'm, I'm sure some of you out there are saying, oh, that's just because they're money grubbing. No, they don't give a shit. I guarantee it. They don't care. This is because they know this is a gate that so many people may not pass. And what it provides them is only having to regulate just a few people because maybe their resources are stretched thin. I don't know. But in the end, it's gatekeeping and it's unethical and it needs to stop. 
Bitcoin fixes this too. In order to comply with the new banking laws in Mexico, PayPal announced it will no longer be holding deposits on customer accounts. Now it only processes payments as an intermediary, which means Sosa can no longer maintain a balance on his account. When Sosa's mother died, sorry, died, when Sosa's mother, based in New York, wants to send him money, she can use PayPal or Western Union if she pays a transaction fee. Instead, she sends funds from her Apple Pay account to Sosa's where the funds remain inaccessible until he travels to the U.S. Good God. Crypto trading platforms can facilitate faster money transfers at a lower cost than banks, according to Cardenas who is also pursuing a PhD in financial engineering, the combination of Mexico's stringent new banking laws, expensive financial services, and large unbanked population is driving public interest in cryptocurrencies. Like other countries, crypto is used primarily for speculation and trading in Mexico, Cardenas said, but the multi-billion dollar flow of remittances into the country, particularly from the U.S., and the difficulties involved in money transfer have created a unique business opportunity for crypto platforms that promise to make transactions easier and cheaper. Quote, internally, we can say that the use of cryptocurrencies is becoming more attractive compared to what other financial institutions offers, uh, Cardenas said. In 2014, Bitso launched Mexico's first Bitcoin exchange. According to Bitso founder and CEO Daniel Vogel in 2016, Bitso grew thanks to young adult gamers in Mexico paying for video games with Bitcoin on the digital media platform Steam. But all that went away the following year when Bitcoin's value soared from 900 to 20,000 in a matter of months. By the end of the year, Bitcoin transaction fees also spiked, accounting for up to 40% of a single transaction. The young gamers simply couldn't afford it anymore. Quote, transaction fees went through the roof from costing a fraction of a penny Two twenty or thirty bucks on their Steam accounts, and that use case, well, it just disappeared. End quote. <clears throat> the year of speculation was twenty seventeen, with crypto market cap reaching six hundred billion dollars, and U.S. based crypto exchange Coinbase becoming the number one app on iTunes. Oh God! Quote. But this is Mexico. You don't have as much disposable income as places like the U.S. or Europe or Asia, and even so. Through trading, or though trading revenue did go up, we didn't grow as much as some of the international players, Vogel said. But there was a massive untapped market just begging for new players' remittances. Bitso had already partnered with payment platform Cripple to enable the quick transfers between dollar and pesos via Liquid XRP, and the firm began processing remittance transactions. And honestly, there's just not much more to to talk about here. the only thing to say, you need to watch Latin America very, very closely, along with all the countries on the continent of Africa. Okay? It's not it's not the United States, and it's not Canada, and it's not Europe. It's gonna be Latin Central America, South America, Africa. Probably like all, all the islands in the South Pacific and, and those nations coming up in through India and then maybe start you know, really hammering into China. But I would not I would not hold my breath on the Chinese move just yet and probably not Russia. It's going to be it's going to be south of the equator. OK, so just keep that in mind and you'll probably be OK. Let's do this one. This is the bad news. Scott Cipollina writing for Decrypt sometime yesterday. Bitcoin 
Exchange BitMEX adds KYC for all of its users. That's right. BitMEX, KYC, now at 150x leverage. <laughs> God, just... Arthur Hayes falls from grace. Bitcoin futures exchange BitMEX will start requiring all users to prove their real-world identity on the exchange by August the 28th, 2020. BitMEX claims the launch of its user verification program will promote a more trusted and secure trading environment for all BitMEX users. <laughs> During the 10-year span of cryptocurrency activity, there has been growing pressure on crypto companies to adopt KYC and AML regulations, both commonly used in the traditional finance space. Even libertarian-run exchange Shapeshift eventually conceded to regulators and now BitMEX is falling in line too. Quote, we've tried to make it a combination of lightweight and easy, said Ben Radcliffe, commercial director of 100X Group, the new holding company for the BitMEX platform, 100X Group. <laughs> Named it after your leverage. Ballers. Quote, geographical location is quite key for us, uh, end quote, Radcliffe continued. While this may upset some of BitMEX users, it could be good in the long run. No, it's never good. Quote, crypto exchanges putting in place institutional gray KYC and AML is essential for the further development of the crypto industry as it ensures to keep bad actors away and allows institutional players to be increasingly comfortable with the asset class. Henry, well, I can't pronounce that name. FinTech and crypto leader of Asia at accounting firm PwC told Decrypt. The process of identification itself should take about five minutes to complete. There's a four-step process that BitMEX claims is similar to ID checks on other crypto exchanges. Users will be asked for a selfie and will be required to answer some questions relating to the source of funds and their trading experience. There is also a practical advantage to user ID, which will allow BitMEX to reliably verify the actual owner of an account in the event of a dispute, hack, or incapacitation, claims BitMEX in a blog post published today. As part of the user verification program launch, BitMEX will also unveil details about a trading tournament where prizes will be on offer for those who have verified their identity, but it's unlikely to appease those affected. <laughs> when in doubt, hit them with swag, I guess. Ah, that's going to do it. Well, at least for this part, let's roll some numbers. All right, trading just started in New York about 30 minutes ago. It's uh, exactly 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time as I do this. So there's not a whole lot of market movement going on right yet. Uh, looks pretty sideways, honestly, except for the FTSE, which is down a full one and a half points. But S&P 500 is down 0.1. NASDAQ down a half. Uh, Dow Jones is down 0.1. Uh, Nikkei is up 0.17. Hang Seng is yeah, sideways. Shanghai is up a point and a quarter almost. Volatility has increased just a bit by 1%. Let's see what's going on with bonds. Eh, I don't even know why I do bonds. Screw that, Screw that man. Uh, West Texas Intermediate is going to cost you $42 and a quarter uh, to get a hold of a barrel of it. It's changes 0.05% to the downside, but good God almighty natural gas. What can somebody tell me what's going on with the natural gas market? I don't understand this. This is six and three quarters percent to the upside. It's now going to cost you $2 and 33 cents to grab a hold of a thousand cubic feet of natural gas. Gold is still hold, holding below 2000 at 1,954 bucks and gold or gold silver 
is down almost 3% down to uh, just under 27 bucks. Let's talk about money. Bitcoin, 11,705. I got a high. It's going to be over a bid asset at 11,720. The low is going to hit be hit BTC, 11,696 bucks. 360,000 transactions went across the wire over the last 24 hours, and that's about 15,000 transactions on average per hour with 1.2 million BTC changing hands at a rate of about 50,000 BTC cent per hour with the average transaction value being 3.3 BTC and the median transaction value 0.047 BTC or right at 550 bucks. Block times are even lower today than they were yesterday. It's eight minutes and 56 seconds. We have 0.6 uh, BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 107 BTC taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. I see no appreciable change in the hash rate. We are still at, wow, I don't get this. We're still at 130 exahashes per second, yet we are down almost, I'm going to say 14 seconds in speed. That's bizarre. I guess because hash rate isn't really like kind of knowable. We can know the difficulty and we know the time of the block, uh, of the, uh, the time in which the blocks are minted. And given those two numbers, somebody's figured out a formula to, to determine the hash rate given certain, you know, factors. But I'm not seeing like a whole hell of a lot of change in the hash rate. And yet we've got a pretty severe change in the amount of time that it's taken for blocks to, to uh, be minted. It's odd. Uh, if I could, Ethereum 426, Bcash 291, BSV 210, Litecoin 56 and a quarter. Ethereum Classic is at almost $7 in Dogecoin. Stepping up 0.0035 and with 56,808 transactions performed on the Dogecoin network over the last 24 hours, it almost lost out to Litecoin, handily throttled Ethereum Classic, and walked all over Bcash with its pathetic 17,201 transactions on that thing. Clark Moody Bitcoin says the price is 11708 for a Bitcoin. It looks like there are 12,659 transactions waiting to clear, and it will take 16 blocks for those transactions to clear. Lightning Networks made, actually made the news a little bit. Total capacity is, I'm showing 984.5 Bitcoin, and that is... $11.5 million U.S. in liquidity spread across 7,358 nodes representing 36,452 channels. Another bump to Tor capacity, thank God. 448.6 BTC are in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that makes the percentage of Tor capacity at 45.6%. Another all-time high, as far as I can tell. And that's like 0.3 of a percent uptick from yesterday. So what's going on there? We have 2,163 nodes. That'll do it for vitals. Welcome to round two of the morning roundup. And why, why I am not introducing vital statistics segment as let's run the numbers is beyond my 
comprehension. If I can remember, I'll start doing that for Monday's show. How DeFi DGENs are gaming Ethereum's money Legos. August 13th, William Foxley writing it for Coindesk. Uh, meet to, oh wait, I'm sorry. First, there were Tendies and YFI. Then came and went Yam. And as of yesterday, we have based money. Meet today's decentralized finance in what amounts to a crossover between massive multiplayer online games like World of Warcraft and crypto pump and dump schemes. These aren't the same DeFi projects launched earlier this summer, said Mentum Capital co-founder Stephen McKee. These new projects are about leveraging Ethereum's tech for unintended usage. They're about making crypto fun again. (laughs) If you held yam, was that fun? Ah. No, they're about making money or losing it. Oh, he actually says they're about making money. Yam Finance launched Tuesday. By the following day, Yam shot upward of 160 bucks per token and had some 700 million in no loss collateral obligations under contract, aka yield farming. Early Thursday morning, Yam entered GitHub Valhalla when a bug locked the project's governance and $750,000 of the treasury. Wow, the token's market cap swiftly lost $60 million in 35 minutes. From the first heartbeat to the last breath, less than 48 hours. But those are the rules of DeFi's newest toy, quote, minimally viable monetary experiments, as Yam Finance dubbed itself. Quote, the longer it takes you to do due diligence in this cycle, the lower your alpha, McKee told Coindesk in a phone interview. If you were clued in to play the game, play it. If not, sit out to the next one, end quote. You better put a tie on that suit speak, bro. McKee was an early liquidity provider for Based.Money, another DeFi MMO game, as he likened it to. The project's anonymous Ghouls founding team welcomed it, its users warmly via door. And the statement apparently is, we are live. Get the fuck in, you DGens. Oh, man. God almighty, this space. Does the project have a governance structure? Where can I stake collateral to farm? What pool has the best returns? These are the questions DeFi degenerates or DGENs shoot back and forth ad nauseum in various community telegram and discord channels for YAM. The central rule was know thy rebase. The algorithmic supply dump issued every 12 hours to push the token's value back towards $1. The token was bid up as high as 167 bucks, according to CoinGecko traders, rushed to take profits before the rebase. After they pumped the token's value back up. Based money isn't much different, minus a few rule changes. Farm the based token, push the token price up, and storm out the door before the algorithm changes the rules. Quote, the base protocol is a DeFi game of chicken designed to shake out weak hands and yield the highest gains for those who, quote, understand the rules, the website reads. Oh, the base is trading hands at $128 at time of writing, according to CoinGecko. DeFi MMO is all possible because of Ethereum's composable nature. Ave CEO and founder Stanny Kulchev said in a recent Chainlink blog, hmm, often analogized to Lego bricks, Ethereum applications can be snapped together to create novel financial projects. You spelt scam wrong. Yield farming makes liquidity just another plastic brick in the box. 
If the product is good, it will get network effects quickly since liquidity moves in an inoperable, interoperable fashion as well, Kulchev said. Yet composability does not translate to product safety. Open Zeppelin security researcher Austin Williams told Coindesk in an email, just ask YAM investors, quote, it is important to understand, however, that just because a project is, com is composed of code that comes from several other audited projects does not mean that the new amalgamation is safe, Williams said. That said, yield farming stands as a better alternative to initial coin offerings. Yield farmers are rewarded with the project's native token for lending liquidity to its market. In other words, you don't get burnt for swapping fiat for an unproven token. As yeah, people, I don't know. It's not like these projects have not warned users beforehand about the risks either. Both Yam Finance and Base Money publicly broadcasted that code banks were unaudited. This doesn't make it a smart play or even a good look for an industry egg-faced with scams. Those who are who bought Yam and or Base tokens at retail prices paid for every farmer's ticket into the arena. Crypto blogger Lefteris Karapetsis said on Thursday, "Quote." The bad side of farming is the DeFi Chad or DeFi Degen, the kind of meme-driven farmer who jumps from protocol to protocol without any thought on contract safety, chasing the biggest yield, dumping their tokens to the new guys, and then moving on. You've taken Ponzi scheme and turned it into a freaking algorithm. Oh, dude, but it is lucrative for interest-hungry farmers. It's also really fun. Quote, a community that didn't exist 30 hours ago through the power of memes and financial incentive alignment is about to get a higher voter turnout than the United States presidential election usually does. Yam Finance Telegram owner Eric Meltzer said early Thursday morning, referring to a governance vote to save the project. Sorry, this is really hard to get through. A shower of win rebase memes and emojis greeted Meltzer's comments. Within hours, the whole project was all but bricked. But don't worry, Yam 2.0 is already in the works. Yeah, they're going to do Yam 2.0. Nothing ever stays dead in this space. I mean, the resurrection potions are everywhere. You have to be careful. You have to be careful. It's just, I for, you know, I foresee lots of people wearing uh, prison orange in the future. I'm going to do this one from the newly, uh, the newly instantiated BTC times. That's btctimes.com. These two institutions alone bought $410 million in Bitcoin since late July. Joseph Young, penitent for August 13. Since July 29th, Grayscale and MicroStrategy have purchased 14,422 Bitcoin and 21,454 Bitcoin respectively, totaling more than 410 million USD in value at the time of writing. During the same period, Bitcoin miners mined 12,594 BTC. In other words, two institutions bought three times as much Bitcoin as was mined. Whoa, if that doesn't make you bullish, I don't know what will. You're probably in a coma. The large-scale purchases of the two conglomerate conglomerates demonstrates two crucial trends. First, the perception of Bitcoin as a store of value and a hedge against inflation is strengthening. Second, 
institutions institutions are confidently investing in Bitcoin throughout the second half of 2020. The primary catalyst behind the inflow of institutional capital into Bitcoin was the fading U.S. dollar. Since April, the U.S. dollar has declined substantially against other reserve currencies. Various macro factors, including inflation and the pandemic, caused additional selling pressure on the dollar. Joe Manibo, nice name, Joe Manimbo, a senior market analyst at Western Union Business Solutions said the delay in stimulus should further cause the United States dollar and the economy to decline. Quote, the longer wait for Washington to deliver, to deliver another round of pandemic relief has caused negative dollar clouds to gather over the community. If the dollar continues to see an extended downtrend, the appetite for alternative stores of value could increase. Assets like gold and Bitcoin could simultaneously rally driven by institutional demand. The confluence of rising inflation, growing perception of Bitcoin as a store of value, and uncertainty in the global economy could make Bitcoin more attractive to institutions. Companies are already starting to consider Bitcoin as an investment to offset inflation in the long term. In its official uh, press statement, MicroStrategy, a $1.3 billion software firm based in the U.S., pinpointed inflation and Bitcoin's long-term trajectory as its two main reasons behind the investment. Quote, MicroStrategy observed distinctive properties of Bitcoin that led it to believe investing in the cryptocurrency would provide not only a reasonable hedge against inflation, but also the prospect of earning a higher return than other investments, end quote. Silbert, the CEO of Grayscale, recently announced that Grayscale's assets under management achieved a new all-time high. The firm operates the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, one of the few publicly traded investment vehicles in the United States that tailor to institutional investors. Institutions often utilize the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust to gain exposure to Bitcoin without carrying significant risks in terms of security and or maintenance. The AUM of Grayscale hit $5.8 billion, I guess that's Australian, on uh, <clears throat> on August uh, 11th with the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust accounting for $4.8 billion. The consistent increase in institutional investments in Bitcoin coincides with the correlation between Bitcoin and gold. The two data points evidently show institutions are warming up to Bitcoin. Okay, yeah, it, it, institutions have been coming. They just haven't really made a announcements about it until now, right? And I'll bet you after seeing MicroStrategy's stock price increase like a rocket ship after their announcement, um, you're going to see people who have already holding Bitcoin and they just hadn't said anything about it. If they're holding it, I bet you they come out of the woodwork and start talking about it, their investments in Bitcoin now because it's going to be good for their stock price. Also, uh, gold. If you really think about it, I'm not an enemy of gold. I disagree with almost everything Peter Schiff says about Bitcoin, but I do agree with him on quite a few things about the United States economy and gold in general. I don't hate gold, but think of it this way. If I'm going to buy gold, let's say I'm an institutional CEO and I tell my traders, we're dumping the dollar and we're getting into gold. Are you going to hold the physical gold? Because if you don't, then it's worth the paper that the gold said that that piece of paper that says you own 400 pounds of gold, it, your 400 pounds of gold is worth that piece of paper until you physically possess the gold bullion. If you buy substantial amounts of gold, you're talking about thousands of pounds, tight security, storage, the whole, I mean, the whole nine, man. 
and getting it just transportation alone, the security behind transportation has to be even heavier than if once you've got it into a vault, because at least you know where it is. But when it's on the street, if anybody knows about that haul, you got real problems. So not only are you paying gas, you're paying the truckers, you're paying a shit ton more security than would normally be used to protect that shipment while it's on wheels. That just, to me, seems like a lot of work, a lot of pain points to go through, a lot of coordination, when hell, I can just buy Bitcoin and throw the freaking hardware wallet in a vault, in an office, on the third floor, maybe by the break room. I don't know. It's easier, okay? I don't hate gold, but Bitcoin has better properties in a lot of ways. U.S. prosecutors seize Bitcoin allegedly tied to, guess who? Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hamas. That's right. It's for the children because terrorism. August 13th, out of Coindesk, Nicholas Day continues on. In a press release Thursday, the DOJ announced it had investigated and dismantled three terrorist financing cyber-enabled campaigns involving Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, which is ISIS, I guess. I've never heard it stated that way. Legal documents filed Thursday show the DOJ is trying to seize Bitcoin from 155 addresses. It alleges were used by Al-Qaeda to fund terrorism and arrest two individuals allegedly involved with facilitating crypto transfers for Hamas. In a complaint of forfeiture, the FBI Homeland Security Investigations and Internal Revenue Service Cyber Crimes Unit claim that Al-Qaeda created a sophisticated money laundering operation through a network of Telegram channels which they used to solicit Bitcoin donations intended to fund acts of terror. Quote, Al-Qaeda and affiliated terrorist groups have been operating a Bitcoin money laundering network using Telegram channels and other social media platforms to solicit BTC donations to further their terrorist goals, the complaint read. As described below, Al-Qaeda and affiliated, ter affiliated terrorist groups operate a number of Telegram channels and purport to act as charities when in fact they are soliciting funds for the Mujahideen. Good God. Let's just kind of pause right there. Um, a BTC money laundering network would be fundamentally different than lying to somebody saying you're a charity. They are not the same. I think what's happening here is that the narrative is being constructed to automatically think that uh, charities involving BTC are a money laundering operation. That's how these people think, man. Don't, don't, don't uh, fool yourself into believing that they don't. The complaint starts with donations sent to a telegram group called Tawheed and Jihad Media, which began soliciting Bitcoin donations in April of 2019. Overall, the investigator, investigators found 155 different crypto addresses they claimed are tied to Al-Qaeda and various other organizations allegedly supporting the terrorist group funds were sent to gift card exchanges and other platforms according to the filing. The defendant properties are subject to forfeiture to the United States as assets of a foreign terrorist organization engaged in planning or perpetrating any federal crime of terrorism, the complaint read. A separate affidavit in support of an arrest warrant detailed how Mehmet Ahati and allegedly stored the transfer of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Ripple, uh, and EOS, on behalf of Al-Qassam's Hamas military wing, 
The affidavit alleges the two violated money services business regulations and the Banking Secrecy Act. Investigators used Chainalysis and Exigent to track Bitcoin transfers from these organizations over the last 18 months. In a blog post, Chainalysis said authorities seized more than $1 million from terror campaigns. The blog post went on to describe how the company tracked the funds, noting that many of the addresses are hosted at various exchanges. According to the Middle East Media Research Institute, Telegram groups were soliciting Bitcoin for terrorist groups as recently as July 2020. Oh, apparently Lee Kuhn contributed to reporting on this piece. Get ready for the narrative. New one's coming. They're going to grind them out. This is not going to be easy. It's, it, it never was going to be easy. Right? So while you guys are out there farming your freaking yam yields, you might want to keep in mind that you're going to be the first to fall because you're easy to get. No, wrapped Bitcoin is not a competitor to the Lightning Network, and here's why. Cole Peterson, Peterson's going to tell us for BTC Times sometime yesterday. Multiple news outlets have recently run reports comparing the Lightning Network's liquidity to that of wrapped Bitcoin and ERC-20 token representing Bitcoin issued on the Ethereum blockchain. The amount of liquidity within WBTC has surged in recent times, seemingly outpacing that of the Lightning Network. This trend has been primarily driven by users turning to WBTC as a way to utilize Bitcoin while engaging in allegedly decentralized finance fads like yield farming. My yield. Although an easy way to take a low effort jab at Bitcoin scalability and adoption, these comparisons fail to account for the fundamental differences between the Lightning Network and Wrapped Bitcoin that may make it misleading to compare the two. So, the Lightning Network is a second layer built upon Bitcoin's blockchain aimed at increasing the network's scalability and potentially its privacy. In order for Bitcoin to reach its full potential as a mainstream currency used daily by individuals across the globe, it is imperative that the network is able to handle a significant amount of transactions without burdening users with high fees and long confirmation times. Here's why Lightning Network comes into play. The second layer technology was built to enable fast and cheap Bitcoin payments while possibly decreasing main chain congestion. Importantly, the Lightning Network keeps transactions on this second layer instead of bloating the main chain with coffee purchases. Transactions conducted through Lightning occur instantaneously by creating direct payment channels between transacting users. Wrapped Bitcoin differs greatly from the Lightning Network as it is an ERC-20 token issued on the Ethereum blockchain that is meant to mirror the value of Bitcoin. Those who hold wrapped BTC do not actually hold Bitcoin, nor do they transact on the Bitcoin network. Rather, they hold tokens that are backed one-to-one -one by actual Bitcoin held by a centralized entity and transacted via the Ethereum blockchain. Unlike wrapped BTC, which is a token issued by central counterparties, uh, centralized counterparties, the Lightning Network is decentralized and a permissionless layer. This makes it impossible to accurately compare the two. Lightning transactions are also not in any way promises of future transactions or Bitcoin-denominated credit created by a trusted third party. They are actual, completely valid Bitcoin transactions that may be effectively broadcast and committed to the main chain when and if needed with strong safety and fairness guarantees based on game theory and cryptography as opposed to social reputation, legal liability, or direct trust. Adding to the inaccuracies of this comparison is the fact that a good portion of the Lightning Network's transactional volume is sent across private payment channels, which aren't accounted for 
in any of the figures used in recent liquidity and usage rate comparisons between Lightning Network and Wrapped BTC. According to Christian Decker, a researcher at Blockstream, as much as 40% of the Lightning Network channels are private as of late 2019. Nevertheless, this hasn't stopped multiple outlets from running headlines like Ethereum's Wrapped Bitcoin set to eclipse Lightning Network capacity and Lightning Lags Wrapped Bitcoin Booms in DeFi Liquidity Race, conflating the two as if they were competitors. On a similar note, analytics platform Skew also stated that while the dollar value stored within WBTC is surging to an all-time high, the Lightning Network is stagnating. Quote, WBTC reaching new all-time high in market cap, Lightning struggling to get similar traction for now. Both were at the same level only three months ago. Despite how it has been framed, this isn't a major victory for Ethereum or wrapped BTC. The value siphoned into the tokenized Bitcoin isn't outpacing that entering the Lightning Network because it is better. Uh, yeah, because it is better, nor because users prefer transacting on Ethereum. Rather, it is due to speculative investors attempting to cash in on DeFi incentives using collateral that mirrors Bitcoin's price. As Bitcoin continues garnering mainstream adoption, it is imperative for new entrants to the ecosystem to understand that wrapped BTC, despite appropriating Bitcoin's name, shares no similarities to the benchmark digital asset beyond its price. There you go. Thank you, Cole, for clearing that up for us. Uh, summary, there's no such thing as BTC on the Ethereum blockchain. It doesn't exist. It never has existed. It never will exist because Bitcoin doesn't function outside of its network. Just because somebody says that they've, they're give, give you a wrapped BTC token and peg it one-to-one -one doesn't mean you should believe them. This is pretty much how all frauds work. Confidence games. This is how people end up in prison. This is how people end up poor. There's no such thing as Bitcoin on the Ethereum network. Please stop it. Let's see. Where are we at? Uh, oh, Black, uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing unless it's really, really short. And it is not. Um, but Joseph Young is going to end this one telling us that BlackRock Vanguard indirectly hold Bitcoin via microstrategy investment. And he was writing this for uh, Cointelegraph. The, the, what he's saying is that both BlackRock and Vanguard are huge backers of MicroStrategy. So when MicroStrategy did what they did and bought that much Bitcoin, they would probably have to have telegraphed that to, their, uh, to the companies that are holding the majority of ownership in that particular company. It's not like, you know, if I hold like 35% and somebody else holds 35% as investors into something like MicroStrategy, if they were to do something like this and not tell me, I would sue their ass, even though I would probably like fold the suit up after a while because that would, buying Bitcoin was the best play that they could have done. But if they had done something like bought Ethereum, I'd sue their ass if they didn't tell me because I would have had to have signed off on that shit unless it was within somehow the, the contract of how I invested in the company that I had absolutely no say in what the directors do of that company. And I would never sign such a piece of paper, not at the levels that BlackRock and Vanguard have interest in MicroStrategy, which means BlackRock and Vanguard's board of directors said, yes, 
So it wasn't just MicroStrategy buying Bitcoin, BlackRock and Vanguard rubber stamped that son of a bitch. That's bullish. That'll do it for the morning roundup. All right, today's daily train wrecked. Well, it kind of isn't a train wrecked and it's not really a plane crash and it's not like a meteorite hitting Peter Schiff in the head. I'm not exactly sure how to characterize what we're about to uh, do, but we'll get it done nonetheless. Uh, how, to, how to go about this? Let's just do it from the top. David Mihal. Uh, that's D-M-I-H-A-L on Twitter, says, here you go, Pierre Richard, and, you know, uh, puts his Twitter handle so that Pierre will be able to see it. Connect to any node, audit any token, defaults to comp, make sure all transfers and balances add up correctly, and it matches the total supply value, and then he links to the GitHub where repository where this particular code is. He continues, it's quickly hacked together. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bug or two, but again, comp seems to check out. I'll try it on some other tokens. Comp is a DeFi token, so just so you know. Uh, just scanned YFI. Everything checks out on that token too, although you have to decrease block scan range down to 100 or 1,000. Otherwise, requests start to time out. Pierre Rochard writes back. Now, before I give you his, his, uh, his reply here, uh, this entire thing is about supply... I'm going to say it, hashtag supply gate. This has everything to do and is and was completely born out of this shit show that is Ethereum, okay? Um, and the fact that they don't know how to count because they never can really know what, what supply there is. And then this is stemmed out, say, you know, has branched out to start including, well, if you don't even know how many Ethereum are on, are, is flowing through the, the or, ETH tokens are flowing through the Ethereum ecosystem, then what about all of the ERC-20 tokens, which is basically what all this shit DeFi yield farming yam crap has been based on, right? So <clears throat> Pierre put basically put out the word in the street that nobody was going to be able to do it. David did it. And the reason that I know he did it is because of uh, Pierre Richard's, uh, uh, oh God, um, reply. He says, very nice. DM me a Bitcoin address so that I can make you a millionaire. Thank you for caring about users. Thank you for caring about transparency and auditability. We probably disagree on a lot, but I think we also have a lot in common. Respect for you and at Compound Finance. And that kind of blew me out of my chair because this represents something that I think is kind of important is being able to have the effect that Pierre had when he basically, you know, I don't know if he started the whole thing about supply gate or if it was somebody else and, and Pierre just kind of picked up the mantle because he was the most vocal about it. But when he challenged people to come up with a way to, to figure out how to figure out a way to figure out the supply of any of these tokens, this guy did it. And at the same time, Andreas Antonopoulos was chilling with Laura Shin, chit-chatting about how all this shit was stupid. And meanwhile, David Mihal was writing, writing code. Andreas was talking. Mihal was writing code. Andreas was talking about how stupid we all were for thinking that it was important to know the fucking supply. 
David wrote the code. I probably don't agree with anything David says either because he clearly likes ether. I don't. I think the whole damn thing is going to go down in flames. I think the whole damn thing is a scam, and I think it's enabled thousands of scams. It's the enabling that worries me the most. It's not the fact that it's just one scam. Shit, I can deal with that. This thing created thousands of scams, and it's going to create thousands more before it's all said and done, if it's ever said and done. I don't know. David wrote the code. Andreas bitched to Laura Shin about how toxic we all were. David wrote the code. I, I know I'm just repeating myself, but it's important to understand who's doing what. This guy actually did something. And Pierre said, you know what? You did a good job, which means that Pierre used the damn thing and said, you know what? It works. So maybe we'll put the supply gate to bed. I don't know. I really don't care. As long as we remember that there's no such thing as Bitcoin on the Ethereum network. That's an important thing to understand. Wrapped Bitcoin is not Bitcoin. It has nothing to do at all with Bitcoin ever, period. I want to thank both David Michal and Pierre Rochard for being part of this segment that is not The Daily Train Wrecked. While I did not have a proper um, daily train wreck for you, I do have a, well, I do have a proper dad joke. This is from Dad Says Jokes. What did the pirate say when he turned 80? I'm 80. Yeah, that was a good one, man. I like that one. Nice and short. Um, and speaking of, it's 12 minutes past the hour mark. I'm running long, so have a good weekend. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day. <laughs>